Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge from Gateway Seminary, and I'm delighted to once again talk with you about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Uh, on the podcast, the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about evangelism, particularly our responsibility in personal evangelism and uh, the importance of not creating barriers to sharing the gospel. As I was working through those podcasts and thinking about that material, uh, it came to me that a lot of our emphasis on sharing our faith, a lot of our emphasis on evangelism is about techniques or about skills or about training. And those are certainly important aspects, both as a leader, yourself, being a model of uh, personal witnessing, uh, and also in training others. And so I don't want to diminish or in any way contradict um, the importance of training and technique or um, learning methods about how to share your faith more effectively. But Spirit, uh, sharing our faith is more than just uh, a sum total of methods and techniques. It's really a spiritual experience. It's a spiritual exercise. And so what I want to talk about on the podcast this week is about what it means to uh, trust the Holy Spirit in terms of your personal evangelism or your sharing your faith with other people. Uh, to be able to get in step with the Spirit, to see how the Spirit is working, uh, and to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain and motivate your witnessing endeavors. That's what I want to talk about uh, this week. So the Holy Spirit in evangelism, or the Holy Spirit in personal witnessing, that's our theme. I think we have to start by underscoring that the Holy Spirit is always at work among unbelievers. Now we make the mistake of thinking sometimes that uh, the Holy Spirit only starts working with a person in the moment that we start talking with them are that the Holy Spirit is only at work in a person in a certain environment, like uh, in a church setting or in some kind of ministry setting, like a Bible study. But the Holy Spirit is at work much more broadly in the lives of unbelievers. I think there's a good example of this in the Bible that helps illustrate how the Holy Spirit works with unbelievers. It's the conversion of a man named Cornelius in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, uh, the first three verses uh, start the story this way. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a military man, in other words. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. At about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God. Now, tucked, with these, tucked within these introductory comments are several important uh, indicators or several important flags, if you will, of how the Holy Spirit was at work. First of all, uh, Cornelius had a spiritual interest. It said he prayed to God. He had personal relationships with people who were God-fearing or God-worshipping. The Bible says he did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people. Uh, he had a deep respect for God. The Bible says he was a devout man and feared God. And then he had concern for his family. It said he feared God along with his whole household. And then he had a spiritual prompting or a spiritual experience that really got his attention, and that is he saw a vision of an angel. Now, these are ways that the Holy Spirit is at work among unbelievers today. He's motivating them to pray to God or to cry out to God. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many people pray and how often they pray. Uh, just talking to God in whatever way they can or whatever way they, they, uh, they, they know to, to try to somehow connect with him. Uh, he had relationships, or the Spirit prompts relationships with, with believers, uh, bringing them into relationships with people like you. 
the Spirit uh, produces a respect for God, a sense from natural revelation or from the, from the creation that there is a God and that he's big and he needs to be respected and he needs to be worshipped. He's, he's someone that, that's over us, that we hold in awe. Uh, and, and then concern for family. People are motivated by the Spirit to think about spiritual things because they're worried about their children having spiritual input or spiritual training. Uh, they're worried about their aging parents and what will happen to them when they die. So the Spirit stirs people up with family concerns and then with just simply with spiritual promptings, simply doing things that produce a supernatural awareness that God is real and wants to do something special in their lives. Now, I've had several experiences, many experiences with with the Holy Spirit at work among unbelievers. Uh, here's some examples. There was a woman named Kim who was a single mom, uh, recently divorced, who was really struggling. Uh, she came to our church's child care center and asked if we could uh, make some special arrangement to care for her child on some kind of reduced rate. And uh, we had some benevolence funds available, and we were able to help her with that. So Kim started bringing her child to our church's uh, daycare center. Well, uh, as she was doing that, she started lingering a little longer each day and getting to know the workers and talking with the director, and they started building a relationship with her. And over a few weeks, that relationship turned into an invitation to stay for some refreshment or to stay for a little while when she picked up or dropped off her child. And then that turned into an invitation to church and to be involved in our church in terms of attending worship service or Bible study, which Kim eventually started doing. And over a period of weeks... Uh, the Holy Spirit's first prompting was your child needs some care and your child needs some religious training and maybe a church could help you. That first, religious, that first spiritual impulse uh, to get some religious input or training for her child and to turn to a church for help in her moment of need uh, with her limited finances and recent divorce, that spiritual prompting turned into a person who was able to come to know Jesus Christ personally and become an active part of our church. Then there's another couple, an older couple named Orville and Pearl. They were uh, lifelong non-churchgoers. They had never had any relationship with God or any interest in church or anything like that. Uh, but, uh, but a friend of theirs just mentioned to them once about how, how much he enjoyed our church and would they ever like to come with him. Well, what he didn't know, the friend, was that Orville and Pearl had been talking not so much about church or not so much about God, but they'd been talking about death. And what was going to happen to them when they died? They were aging. They, they realized this. They were facing the realities of all that that entailed. And they were starting to ask hard questions about what's next for us. And the invitation to church uh, was, was, a, was a, a connect point for them to understand that maybe they'd get an answer to their question there. And sure enough, after attending our church for a few weeks, uh, they came to faith in Jesus Christ because of their spiritual motivation to be uh, of concern for what would happen to them after they passed away. And then another one uh, was a friend of mine named Glenn. He was an over-the-road trucker. Uh, he was driving in his truck one day, and when it, in his words, he said, God got in my truck. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means or what happened there, but he came to see me soon after that and said, listen, uh, I, I've met you before, but I don't really know you very well, but I think I need to talk to a pastor. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, God got in my truck. I said, well, tell me about that. And as he described it, all he could say was that he's been thinking about God and thinking about what it would mean to have a commitment to him. And then he said one day 
He just had a sense of supernatural power, a sense of supernatural awareness that something had happened, uh, was happening around him, and he actually pulled a truck over and stopped and prayed and talked to God, and, and out of that conversation or out of that prayer, he came to have a conversation with me. So I'm simply saying that these illustrations underscore the reality that God is at work among unbelievers. Uh, like Cornelius, he was at work with Kim and Orville and Pearl and Glenn. Uh, he's at work in the lives of people to draw them uh, into a relationship with himself, and he uses a lot of different means. He prompts people about family concerns, uh, like he did Kim. He prompts people about concerns about life after death, like the older couple I mentioned. And sometimes he just invades life and says, I'm real, you need me, I want a relationship with you, like he did Glenn that day in his truck. When you talk to uh, unbelievers about the gospel, you'll be astounded to discover how the Holy Spirit has already been at work in their lives, uh, to bring them an awareness of their need for God, to give them some interest in spiritual issues, to connect them in some way to a, spiritual, to a friend who can give them spiritual guidance. The Holy Spirit is at work among unbelievers. Now, he's preparing people to hear the gospel, but he's also doing something else, and that is he's convicting people of their sin. You know, the, the Bible says, uh, Jesus speaking, he said, I came to convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You can find that in John 16, beginning in verse 8. Jesus came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, this is a primary function of the Holy Spirit's work. Now, some people get confused about this. They think that their task in witnessing is to bring conviction to people of their sin, to show them their need for righteousness, and to remind them or warn them of coming judgment. Well, it's certainly important to establish with a person that all have sinned. It's appropriate to tell a person that there's a coming judgment. Uh, it's, a, it's important to explain how that we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of those are themes of a good witnessing uh, conversation. But it's important to remember that while we are communicators of truth and while we share these realities, it's not our responsibility to convict a lost person of their sin or of their need for righteousness or of the coming judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's role. And let me tell you, he's far better at it than we are. When we share uh, the, the basic outline of the gospel, God loves you, you're a sinner, Christ died for you, you need a, you need a Savior, you need, a, you need him as your Lord. When you share that basic outline, it's, it's, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit can come into that moment and bring conviction of sin. He brings that conviction deeply, profoundly, and in a way that causes a person to want to turn away from their sin in repentance. Now, this can be really challenging to, to, to wait for it to fully happen because, honestly, loving sinners while they're acting like sinners is sometimes really difficult. We have to tolerate offensive behavior and lousy attitudes uh, caring for people in spite of their actions can be very draining. But it's our responsibility to love people and to deliver the truth to them. You're in sin, you're, 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 you are a sinner. Your life's being lived in sin. That's going to lead to judgment. And judgment is coming. You need righteousness, but that can only come through Jesus Christ. We communicate those same themes, but it's imperative that we remember it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring conviction. And when he does, the person will be ready to repent or will be open to repent but not until. And so we have to stay faithful, to, faithful with our witness until that moment comes. I think about a fellow that I knew, let's call him Troy. He was uh, what is 
would be called today a sex addict. Uh, he went from uh, woman to woman, sometimes having multiple sexual partners in the same week. Of course, this had cost him his marriage, it had cost him his relationship with his children, and it had cost him his self-respect. But this drive that was in him to satisfy this deep insecurity that he had, this deep longing through some kind of sexual fulfillment, was powerful and really controlled so many aspects of his life. Most people found that repulsive, but he had one friend who just wouldn't give up on him. And that one friend uh, stayed in relationship with him because he realized that all of this sexual behavior was symptomatic of Troy's deep need, his deep longing for something to satisfy deep down in his soul. And so his friend stayed in connection or stayed connected with him. And over a period of several years, uh, built a relationship that withstood a lot of difficulty and a lot of pressure and a lot of turmoil. But finally, finally, in a moment of just incredible breakthrough, God convicted Troy of his sin and his, his need for righteousness and a coming judgment and brought that conviction to bear in the context of a loving relationship with a friend who had told him the truth about his life over and over again in a non-judgmental way but in a clear way. And I was there on a Sunday when uh, Troy and his friend came down the aisle of a church worship service and said, uh, and Troy said, I, I want to I give my life to Jesus Christ. And there in, in an altar of a church, he got down on his knees and, and cried out to God in a way that was, that was almost heart-wrenching. Just, he just wailed almost out to God that he, would come to, that he would be forgiven of his sin and that Christ would come into his life. It was a pretty dramatic moment, but it happened because we... Because in the context of a loving relationship where truth was communicated, uh, sin or, or the conviction of sin finally came and conversion resulted. And that leads me to the next thing. You know, the Holy Spirit prepares people for the gospel. He, he produces conviction in their lives. But it's also the Holy Spirit's role to accomplish regeneration. He's the one who actually brings about new birth. Now, this is important to remember because as a, as a witness, as an evangelist, as someone who shares uh, your faith... You're not responsible to produce salvation. You're not responsible to save people. You, you can't do that. You can engage people. You can share the gospel, but only the Holy Spirit can accomplish that regenerating moment. And when it happens, it can be so amazing, so beautiful, so powerful. You know, I've been present when, I don't know, countless people have prayed to receive Jesus Christ, and, and every one of those stories is special and unique, but, but one story really illustrates this point most clearly. Um, I had a, a friend, or a woman in, in our church who had a friend, and let's call her Trish, and so my, my friend uh, witnessed to Trish, talked with Trish, and, and helped her, you know, come to grips with what it meant to, have, to become a Christian. And, and through that process, it's important to understand Trish was a very accomplished person. She was married to a very professional man. They had a high place in the community. They were members of the country club, and they were, you know, felt fairly uh, well off and very much respected. Uh, you know, she was just, she was just a, that, that kind of person. And so it, it took a while for her to process through and come to grips with her need for the gospel. But when she finally did... Uh, because of her respect for, you know, uh, pastors and her wanting to, quote, get it right, I think, she came to see me with her friend, and she said, uh, my friend's been talking with me, I've been coming to your church, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and, 
and, uh, and I'm really interested in what it means to commit my life to Jesus Christ. And so there in my office, I walked her through the gospel. I, I knew she'd heard it many times from me preaching and from her friend sharing, so I just walked through a summary of the gospel with her. But this is very important to note. At no time in that conversation did I ever use the phrase born again. Uh, I don't really use religious terminology or jargon like that when I'm sharing the gospel, and I didn't that day for sure. So when I finished uh, my presentation, I said, Trish, would you like to pray today and commit your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And she said, yes, I would like that. So we bowed our heads, and um, I led her in a prayer time in which she repented of her sin, placed her faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. When we concluded the prayer, as soon as we said, as I said, amen, she said, amen, she leaned back in her chair, put her hands over her chest and said, <gasps> like that. And I thought, oh, well, you know, something had happened. I, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. She was gr- clutching her breast like she was having a heart attack or something. And I said, Trish? And she said, oh, I'm fine. And I said, okay, that's good. And then she looked at me and said, well, I guess this is what, it's, this is what it feels like to be born again. And that just so uh, resonated with me in that moment because she, she, she was uh, converted, the regeneration happened, and it was so real to her that she felt it in her chest, if you will. She, she clutched her breast and leaned back in her chair and exclaimed, oh, and then when I asked her about it, she said, oh, this must be what it feels like to be born again. And I've never forgotten that moment because it, it so crystallized so clearly Uh, that the Holy Spirit is the one who accomplishes regeneration. He's the one who brings about new birth. And when he does it, it sometimes happens in such a a beautiful and profound way that that the person just spontaneously says, I've just been born again. I've got a new life. I'm, I'm changed on the inside. I can feel it. And that was a that was just a pretty powerful and cool way of me experiencing this action of the Holy Spirit when he when the Spirit brings about regeneration. So now let's summarize this first part. The Holy Spirit is always at work in the lives of unbelievers. He's preparing people to hear the gospel, and we saw that in Cornelius, and we saw it in some of the examples I gave. And then he's convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And those issues are not something that we can bring about. Now, we can give a faithful witness of uh, the fact that we're all sinners, we all have judgment coming, and we all need the righteousness of Christ. We can do that in the context of a loving relationship. Uh, But it's the Holy Spirit who ultimately brings about the conviction of sin that's needed and the conviction about judgment and the conviction about righteousness. And then when that happens, uh, there are those moments when we see the Holy Spirit come into a person's life and accomplish regeneration. He brings about a conversion experience. And in that moment, sometimes, like my friend Trish, you just call out and say, wow, this is what it feels like to be born again. So the Holy Spirit is always at work in unbelievers. But in a witnessing encounter, the Holy Spirit is also working through believers. Now, first of all, the Holy Spirit is working through us to give us power in witnessing. A very famous verse, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Uh, That's a great verse to remember when you're thinking about moving into a witnessing relationship because you have the opportunity to do that not in your own power, but in God's power. And I'm, I think particularly, both in the context of that verse and in the stories of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is particularly at work and particularly powerful when people are trying to share their faith. Anytime we're sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit's at work. The Holy Spirit also gives authority to believers. Now, there's two aspects of that authority. 
The first aspect is the name of Jesus. We're, we're speaking in the authority, the power, the name, the place, the position of Jesus Christ. And second, we're speaking the gospel, a message that in and of itself um, has power. And so when we, when we are speaking the gospel and speaking the name of Jesus, we have particular power or authority that comes through us for the task. I, I saw this when I was a young pastor. In my first pastorate, um, I got connected to a group of women in our community that I affectionately called the Country Club Bible Study. Now, they didn't call themselves that, and they actually laughed at it when I called them that, but uh, I called them the Country Club Bible Study. Well, you guessed it, because they met at the Country Club every week. Uh, they were doing a pretty serious Bible study, uh, working through the entire book of Acts, uh, chapter by chapter, and they spent a year doing that. Well, at the end of that year, uh, one of the members of the Bible study was a member of our church, and she said to me, you know, there's, there's a number of women in this study, and some of them really understand the Bible, and I'm not sure that some of them really fully grasp its meaning and message yet. I wonder if you'd come out and have a dialogue with us. Well, just to be quite honest, that was a bit intimidating for me. I mean, these were kind of matriarch-type women. Some of them were younger, but most of them were older. They were all married to very powerful men in our community, and um, and it was a, and, I, and I was going out to the country club, which was something I'd never done before as a young pastor. And I had a beat-up old rattle-trap Toyota Corolla back then that I was driving. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm wheeling up to the valet parking in that thing. And the whole process of going out there was very intimidating to me. And I remember thinking, Lord, what am I doing here? And what do I have to say to these women? And how am I going to hold my own in, in this room when they start asking me all these questions they have about the Bible and about life and about the, the issues that they're wanting to discuss. And I said, Lord, just help me. And I remember walking into that room thinking, I don't have any authority because of my age. I'm too young or my experiences. I'm too green or my achievements. They're just too few. But I remember walking in that room thinking, Lord, I have you and I have your gospel. And that's what I'm going to stick to today. I'm just going to talk about you and your gospel. And that turned out to be one of the more profound opportunities I've ever had in a group witnessing experience. They peppered me with question after question after question, not antagonistic questions that required an apologetics defense, but genuine inquisitive questions about what they really wanted to know about God and the gospel. And I was able to speak with power and authority because I stayed focused on the person of Jesus and on the gospel message. And that gave me the authority to speak clearly and articulately uh, what these ladies needed to hear. So the Holy Spirit uh, gives you power, and the Holy Spirit gives you authority. But the Holy Spirit also does another thing for believers in the context of witnessing, and that is the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom. There's a verse in the Bible which says, uh, in Luke, uh, it says, whenever you, they bring, Jesus was speaking, and he told his disciples, whenever they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. Now, that doesn't mean that you should never prepare a sermon or work on a Bible study or, or even learn witnessing methods or witnessing techniques. That doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is that you shouldn't trust in any of that because in the moment, you're going to need the wisdom of God to help you to know how to give an answer. One of the Proverbs says this. Uh, so it says, uh, uh, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And so that's a great balance. Yes, we're responsible to prepare ourselves for spiritual battle, but we have to trust in the moment that the victory belongs to the Lord. We can't memorize every answer to every possible question that's ever going to be asked in a witnessing encounter. Instead, we have to prepare ourselves and then trust that in the moment, God will give us wisdom to know what to say. 
Uh, I, I led a man and his wife to Christ a number of years ago, I led the wife to Christ first, and that led to a relationship uh, with her husband. It started out as a, you know, a casual friendship, and then over time he started visiting our church, and then eventually he got open to a conversation about the gospel, and we had a few of those conversations, but he, he wasn't ready to give his life to Christ yet, and so um, we just sort of let the relationship simmer, you know, friendship, some occasional worship attendance, a gospel witness when it was appropriate. And then one day he came to church on a Sunday morning and said, hey, listen, I've got some questions. Could we get together this week? I, I want to talk to you. Well, I said, absolutely. So the next day or two, I made an appointment, went to his house and sat down in his living room and he reached over and picked up the piano bench and put it between us. And then he pulled out of his pocket a piece of paper and unfolded it and laid it down on that piano bench. And I glanced down and I saw that it was 17 questions that he had typed out. He said, I've got some questions I want to ask you about God and about what you believe and about the Bible. I'm like, okay. Well, for the next hour or so, he peppered me with his list of 17 questions. And quite honestly, there was no possible way I could have been prepared for that meeting. I, I, I mean, I, I didn't know what he was going to ask. I, I didn't know where we were going with the conversation. I had no idea it was going to be like an interrogation type meeting. But he gave me his list, or he worked through his list, and I answered every question as best I could. And I think some of the questions I answered pretty well, and some of them I don't think I did very well. But I did the best I could. When I got down to the end, I said, now, I've listened to your 17 questions, and I've done the best I can. Can I ask you a question now? He said, sure, okay. I said, well, my question is this. Are you ready to talk about having a personal relationship with God through Jesus instead of having a theoretical discussion about God? I just let that question hang in the air for a minute. Are you ready to have a personal conversation about God and a relationship to him instead of this theoretical discussion about God? He said, you know, I think I am. And I was able to then share the gospel with him in a more personal way. I thought he would become a Christian that night, but he didn't. It was a few days later that he came to faith in Jesus Christ during a worship service at our church. But that night, I, rem I, was so, um, I was so aware of this verse that I just read from Luke. I didn't know what to say. And in the moment, I had to trust God for what to say and answer the questions the best I could and then give the best witness I could and then continue the relationship after that, hoping that in the right moment, the answers to my questions and then the witness that I gave would lead my friend to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, today on the podcast, we've talked about how the Holy Spirit is at work uh, in a witnessing encounter and in the work of personal evangelism. The Holy Spirit is at work among unbelievers. He's preparing people to hear the gospel. He's convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, and he's the one who brings about regeneration. I'm sure there's a whole lot more the Holy Spirit's doing in the lives of unbelievers, but if you can focus just on those realities, it'll change the way you approach people, and it'll give you a good confidence that God is at work all around you, preparing people to hear the gospel and become his followers. And then have confidence that God is working through you as a believer when you start to share the the gospel. Uh, God has given you power by the Holy Spirit working through you. God has given you authority to speak in the name of Jesus and to speak his gospel, the most authoritative name or position or power in the universe, and the most authoritative message that can possibly be shared, the gospel. And then when you do that, God has also promised that he will give you wisdom in the moment. It is not possible uh, not even no matter how many seminary degrees you earn, it is not possible for you to know every answer to every question that every person will ever ask you about God or the gospel. But in the moment, 
the Holy Spirit will bring to mind ideas, thoughts, verses, insights, illustrations, stories, principles that you can use to answer questions people have and to give an effective gospel witness. You know, leaders have to set the pace. We not only train others to share the gospel, but we have to do it ourselves. And that's an important part of our overall Christian responsibility, and I want you to do it well. So in that context, lead on.